good morning. Apparently what that little thing means there is, uh, I guess you can use the words from Amazing Grace at that point and get water. So that's a little bit. Oh, I, didn't I just kind of looked real quick and thought, well, I don't know where the third verse went either. So. Good to be here. Uh, we had a good trip. I'll, I'll try to get you some information on that sooner or later. But uh, we, the last trip back was rather long, uh, the last flight. And I tell you what, I'm sure God loves people from New York, but even he can't stand the airport. So, but anyhow, it's so it is. And we were stacked in a line of 30 planes, and that was after we were already over an hour late. So, but so it was interesting. So, uh, good trip. Uh, it's good to be back here. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to be going through the book of Ephesians uh, for the next several weeks. And I halfway apologize this morning that it's going to be almost more like a Sunday school class than a regular sermon. Uh, that also means with Sunday school, you get, what, 45, 50 minutes? Okay. <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, surely we won't do that. But uh, it's, we're, we're doing Ephesians in the morning, and we're going to do Galatians in the evening. And what's interesting is, is the contrast between these two books, because the book of Ephesians is, is very positive, it's very powerful, it's very encouraging. You know, it's teaching, it's instructive. But it's it's just it's like a it's like a, a church manual in some ways. I, I hate to even use that term, but it's 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 we'll talk about it. You know, the manifold wisdom of God. That's going to be our theme as we go through this. The book of Galatians, on the other hand, kind of is negative, and uh, and you say, well, I don't want to come hear anything negative. Well, sometimes you got to you know tear out the roots and the rocks before you can plant a good seed. And the book of Galatians, he's going the opposite direction. He's saying, here's what grace is. Where did you go? You went another direction. And so they, in some ways, they're, it's, they're almost the same topics, but because of the situation in the different churches, uh, he has to present it a little bit differently each, each time. But just kind of the, before we get started talking about it, it's the... The more I read God's Word, and the more I study the Scriptures, uh, the more I, uh, the more I feel that theology gets in the way, and uh, it gets in the way of, of the life with God. And when I say that, I say that not because I'm against it. If you know me, I like that. The, the more you study and the deeper you study, I think the better it is. Uh, we need to see God's truth. We need to understand God's truth. Uh, I'm really kind of uh, sickened by what I call, I like uh, cola light. What's kind of, you know, you, that's what they call it when you're out of the country, but I can't stand gospel light. I have no desire for that whatsoever. So I guess I'll have to turn into a Pepsi man with a Pepsi Max. So where we'll get it to the whole time, to as much as possible. We need a deep and comprehensive understanding of God's word and an un- that's why, it's, you know, this is just one of I don't know how many verses I could have picked out from the scriptures where he said, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. And we're in a world today where we just want a little bit of religion, not a lot of religion. We want enough information to make us feel comfortable, but not too much to trouble us. You know, uh, we binge watch television uh, I've never heard any, I've not noticed anybody binge reading God's word. 
Uh, that just doesn't seem to be, seem to be quite as popular. And uh, the, the problem I often see is on one hand, there's this careless concern to know God's word. And then on the other hand, you have the people that they have these deep theological roots. And here's just a question for you. You might be able to answer for me. Are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? And I probably caught a lot of you off guard right there. Well, you might have heard of Calvinism, but you might not have heard anything about Arminians. Uh, just to give you a clue, more than likely, we lean a little bit more toward the Arminian. But these are two big theological camps that developed centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And if you're a, a Christian today, that's going to be the question a theologian might ask you. And I, I think your answer to that might be the exact same answer that Paul had. What? <laughs> what is the difference? You know, that Paul wouldn't look at it that way. But basically the idea is God is sovereign, right? Calvinism. But on the other hand, man has free will. That's the basis of what you'll hear termed a lot of times by Arminians. And so which is it? And, and God's word doesn't give you one or the other. God's word just gives you truth. And that's where I say sometimes your theology can get in the way of, God's, of living God's life. A good example of that is, uh, well, I, I put that one passage from Philippians up there, but here's an example. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Paul is talking, or Peter's talking to the people, and after they crucified Jesus, he says, that which God had ordained before the foundation of the world, that's God's sovereignty, you with, a wicked, hands, with wicked hands have taken and crucified. That's man's free will. Uh, later on we have, uh, in Philippians, the verse we have there, work out your own salvation, that's your own responsibility, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's God's sovereignty. And so I'm probably losing you a little bit already, but, I, but I, I have to do this because when we get to the book of Ephesians, I think theology gets in the way of us really understanding what God has to say about this book. And depending on what, what you've been hearing, uh, it depends on which camp you're in. Uh, Ephesians is one of those letters where your predisposed theology gets in the way of understanding what God's trying to say and what Paul's trying to say. Uh, Martin Luther, and that's the reason I bring up this up in the first place. If you know anything about him, he was a little German monk. And very dedicated and, uh, monk. Also, <laughs> very serious-minded Catholic monk. And he never felt he could be good enough to please God. After all, that's kind of what the Roman Church taught, that you, you, you had to earn your salvation. And even then, you couldn't do enough. You know, so if you ever thought you could actually do enough to earn your salvation, they invented a theology called purgatory. So no, no, no. Even if you do everything here, you're going to pay for your sins as a Christian for centuries and centuries to come. Now, that's not biblical. Uh, that's what the Roman church used to teach. But one day, Martin Luther was just sitting down and studying God's word, and he runs into the verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. 
It is the gift of God. And not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So Martin Luther discovered this idea of grace. And from there, from there forward, it changed everything he understood and everything he believed and everything he practiced and everything he taught about faith and grace. So all of a sudden, because Martin Luther found such beauty in the idea that I don't have to earn my salvation, God is going to give it to me by his goodwill or his favor. So at that point, Martin Luther unfortunately went to the other extreme that said, well, you're either saved or you're lost. and There's really nothing you can do about it. Uh, hopefully you're saved, <laughs> I guess is the way he would word it. But he says, you're saved by grace. By God's grace, you've been saved. It's a gift and nothing else. But So anytime any suggestion would come up that you would do something that would be tied into your salvation, Martin Luther would automatically throw that away. I wish Martin Luther had just read one more verse, because verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So again, God's sovereignty, man's personal responsibility. And when you go through and you study this book, and he, he, this is what makes it difficult. You can pull out all kinds of commentaries, and they will basically teach this letter, the short letter, on their predisposed theology. Here, here's a little saying for you, and I'll probably repeat this quite often in the next several weeks. A text without a context is a pretext. You understand what that means? It means when you come to a passage, but you don't look at the context that surrounds that passage, you're probably going to come up with your own predisposed ideas or opinions of what it actually means. So when you look at the commentaries, it's a lot of them will tell you the theme of Ephesians is grace. And they'll base that because in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it has this beautiful verse on grace, actually quite a bit of them, chapter 2. Others will tell you, well, Ephesians is about the theological structure of the church. That, that almost makes your eyes close right there just hearing me describe it that way. And it's hard to block out whatever view you might have already had on Ephesians. Uh, the hard thing here, but I wish we could just sit down and read the six chapters and put aside everything you ever heard and have a little bit of better understanding of, the, of what Paul's saying. But even then, it makes it a little difficult because you also, what you really need to do is you need to put it in the context of where it came from. And so you get a little background on Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, you first hear about this place in Acts chapter 18. Well, you hear 18, 19, and 20 is where you'll find, find it mentioned. Paul's second missionary journey, he shows up there. He doesn't do a whole lot. And he takes off and heads back to give a report to his sponsoring church. Then on his third missionary journey, he comes back and he spends a long time there. Matter of fact, he spends, well, total, I'd say he spends about three years working there. But the second time, he has a huge block of about two years where it is success, it's successful. And it's not only successful, it is so successful that he kind of changes things. Uh, when he first comes there, like I said, he, he establishes the church. Um, but then on that second time, he is there so long and so successful that they actually change things in the region of Ephesus. 
And another thing is, don't think about a city of Ephesus. Yes, Paul planted himself in that city. Matter of fact, he, he starts in a synagogue, which is Jewish. But after he's really successful, eh, some of the guys don't like it. Kind of a common story for Paul. But this time, instead of being beaten and run out of town, he's just kicked out of the synagogue. He moves basically right next door into a schoolhouse called the School of Tyrannus. And he's there for two years. And it's a port town. And so everything of commerce that comes in and out there comes right down through there. And you get the idea that Paul's almost set himself up so that everybody that's coming or going, traveling, comes through there. And he gets to talk to them. And his disciples get to talk to them. His workers get to talk to them. He is so successful there that he changes the commerce of the city. Uh, it's interesting because you think, well, how did he change the commerce? Well, talk to Demetrius the silversmith. Uh, the impact of the gospel was so strong in Ephesus that their number one, you know, I just came from Porto, uh, Portugal, and it's a tourist town. And so you can buy all kinds of knickknacks and everything else, anything, postcards, whatever, because it's a tourist town. Well, Ephesus, one of their main industries was actually a pagan temple. And the, and the men who worked with that temple would make idols made of silver and sell them to the travelers that came through. And Paul's preaching was so successful, they saw their economy go, go down in that particular area. Uh, nearly caused a riot. Uh, the last time we hear about, about uh, Ephesus is Acts chapter 20. Paul is traveling. He calls for the elders to meet with him in Miletus. Um, and then we get to the letter. And the letter was written about oh, 61 AD, we'll say. Uh, here's what you need to know about Ephesus. It is cosmopolitan. It is very dynamic. There are so many people there. I mean, it's, if you go to New York City, what language are you going to hear? English, right? No, just move neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood, and the languages are going to change. You know, when, when you're in Romania, they speak Romanian. When you're in Portugal, they speak Portuguese. When you're in New York City, <laughs> well, they speak whatever. Just every single neighborhood will have a different language. That's kind of the way Ephesus is. Ephesus is very multicultural, very multi-ethnical. Uh, there are rich people, there are poor people, there are freemen, there are slaves, there are merchants, there are laborers, there are Jews, and then there are the what you might call the God-fearing Gentile, and then there's those pagans. I mean pagans. When you get to the church, they come from every one of those backgrounds, and you have to deal, deal with it. You know, it's real easy when you... You get into a church and, and everybody knows the story of Genesis. Everybody knows the story of Moses. Everybody knows about the stories of David. Uh, Sometimes go out there into the world and talk to the average person and see how much they know about God's word. Uh, it's scary. And if you grew up in the church, you know all these stories and you just assume everybody does. Well, that's where the Jew would have been in Ephesus. Everybody knows God's word. No, it's a pagan town. And so not everybody knows these things. Not everybody is familiar with these things. Well, he spends two years there. And basically what it tells us is this took place, it says, for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. Because, again, that's that port town and all, those, all the different roads that lead out of that port, 
go into the Ephesian Valley and roundabouts. And so the gospel wasn't just a gospel written to that city, but to that whole region. Matter of fact, some, some of the ancient manuscripts, they don't even mention Ephesus in them. It's kind of, I don't know, you know, I looked up, you know, the, which one has the strongest support of, you know, whether it should be mentioned or shouldn't be mentioned. But it's obvious whether you have the word Ephesus in chapter 1, like you will see in your Bible, uh, he's talking about Ephesus. He's talking about that region. He has had dynamic... It's, go back and read chapter 19 and see how exciting at times they are. You could carry a handkerchief from Paul and expect a cure. Now, I don't carry a handkerchief, and you shouldn't expect a whole lot out of it. But uh, in those days, it was exciting. And people from every background were there. Diverse times, diverse people, and the word spread. Every single group that you can possibly think of. What's interesting is these people, this is a very positive letter, but they have to be taught some of the most basic things that you could teach. This morning, we, we have an air conditioning problem in our house. Uh, we have the lack thereof. And uh, quite convenient when you have company show up. So uh, anyhow, but I took a cold shower on purpose this morning. But unfortunately, two other people in our household, I had to explain to them how to adjust the water temperature. I thought it was pretty basic myself. But apparently it wasn't, because one took a hot shower that wanted a cold one, and the other one took a cold shower that wanted a hot one. So I don't know what to tell you. But when you get to, you think about it, what should a husband be like? What should a wife be like? How should children treat their parents? How should you treat your neighbor? How should you treat your boss? How should you treat, well, today we'll say employees, but then they said sir, slaves, but oh, some of you may think it's the same today. How do you treat these people? It's pretty basic in our estimation, especially as a Christian. It's not so basic for the world, but as a Christian. He has to explain some of the most basic Christian principles of life lived under the grace of God. The diversity is a massive challenge. And there's this continual growth that seems to be taking place in this church. The conversions are happening daily. And that's what the other problem, you know, every time a new person comes up, they mess it all up, don't they? That's why here lately, we're only baptizing people by the name Smith. So, you know, it used to be rights ruled the church, but uh, they're moving to South Carolina and everywhere else. And so now, of course, if you know all the Smiths in this church, none of them are related to each other. They, I, I think they have their pictures in the post office, and that's why they have the name Smith. I don't know why. But a new person comes into the church and they mess things up because they're different. They don't know the system. They don't understand. And in our opinion, they need to get with the system, our system. That's not Paul's opinion. When we go through this letter, Paul is going to celebrate the differences in people. But he's also going to celebrate the unity in Christ. We want that diversity. We want things to just not be easy. But we want things to be to God's glory more than anything else. Amen. So, Paul writes this in one place, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. He says there is unity, and that's what matters. But the unity is not doing it our way or their way. 
you know. One, I remember this is a bad day to preach it, so on. I guess I'm no suit up here. Like I said, no air conditioning in the house. I went to a church one time, and a man, and again, I was wearing a suit and tie as I, you know, nice, you know, docker pants. And he looked at me and said, Mark, that church where you go to back home, is it a suit and tie kind of church? I said, well, some people wear a suit and tie. Some, you know, not everybody. Goes, I didn't think there was any other kind of church. I thought, really? <laughs> I didn't say anything because I was a guest. But, you know, that you, that you have to have this cookie-cutter way of doing things in faith. That's not scriptural in any way, shape, or form. But what is scriptural is we're united in Christ. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's the type of diversity that comes together to glorify God. And God's being glorified, that's the crucial part that we have to have of this. And when God is glorified, then you have what is called the manifold wisdom of God. Very misunderstood scripture, I think, in a lot of ways. But Paul talks about this, and, and this I see as the best verse throughout this entire letter to describe the theme of this letter. The manifold wisdom of God. Now again, uh, I've had more fun with this word than any other word in my preaching. Because when I think of a manifold, you know, I have a father who did a lot of auto mechanics. And... Um, you know, I know what a manifold is. It's where all the exhaust comes out and goes into that one pipe and then shoots out the back. You know, it, 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 you get the many different pipes that come into one. The many fold into one. I tried to use that in Romania. It has never worked to this day. For one thing, they don't call it a manifold. They call it a saxophone. So tell me how I'm going to talk about the saxophone wisdom of God. It just doesn't work. And the best thing I've been able to come up with to describe this is a tapestry. A tapestry that is filled with so many threads, so many designs, so many things going this way and that way. You know, and if you watch somebody make a tapestry, it's just amazing how they take all those threads and when they're done, you have this beautiful display, a beautiful design or picture, all because all these different things come under the hand of the master, the master designer. And that's us. We be different from one another. Come together as God's glory, and that's the manifold wisdom of God. And he's, when Paul talks about this, he, he's talking about the church. And he says, we're all different. We come from so many different backgrounds, so many different ideas, so many different ways of life. But united to God's glory, we become the manifold wisdom of God. And he says that it might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Again, I think this scripture, when I, don't go to the commentaries on this one, because I, I really do think they fall short. Because they will say, well, the manifold wisdom of God is just God's wisdom. And he uses the church to get that wisdom out, which is the Bible. No. Read the book as a whole. And see how Paul is trying to take all this beautiful diversity that has come together from all different walks of life, and when they're united in Christ, there is a manifold wisdom of God that is seen, made known through the church. So that's our challenge. And I look at this group here, and we're just a small little church 
you know, a bump on the road out here in Claremont County, uh, almost Brown County. But when people can see the unity that this church has, in spite of the diversity we might have, then the wisdom of God is displayed before the world. And it's made known. I, I like the way he describes it because he doesn't say with the way I just said it. He says that the, you know, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church. He didn't say to the world. He said to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that's such much, so much loftier than the way I described it because basically he says when you do church and you do it right, you're teaching angels lessons. They're up there watching, saying, now that's what it's all about. So how much more do we show the world? That's what it's all about. Paul calls it a mystery. And it's not some kind of a mystery that, you know, Agatha Christie, you know. But she always does the butler, right? Except for the, what was it, the, the Orient Express? Everybody killed the guy, right? Okay, so... I'm sorry if you've never read the book, the book before. I just ruined it for you. Well, Paul calls the gospel message a mystery. Not because it's something that you need special powers to comprehend or some special formula to understand, but it's a truth that just needs to be unfolded before the world. And we are the unfolders of that truth. We're the ones who then, when we live according to the message of the cross, According to the person of Jesus Christ, when we live in unity, we unfold that mystery before the world. This letter is about being God-centered. It's about being gospel-centered. And even that we might come from extreme diverse groups of people, we show God's wisdom. And that actually might be a little bit more of a challenge for us. And again, there's Depending on where you're preaching this lesson depends on what challenge you're going to put up to the people. We're in Claremont County. You know, not the most diverse group of people on planet Earth. Uh, Like I said, if you're in New York City, wow, look at the challenge before you. Look at the glory to God you can give with so many different groups, so many different backgrounds. But just the same, we unite here among our own people, our own neighborhood, to show God's glory. And it's done not through cookie cutter similarity, but we're all united to the glory of God more than anything else. So where does that leave us today? Our society today is, is I don't know when, you know, it's the worst that it's been in my lifetime, but I haven't been alive that long. Now, some of the younger people say, oh, yes, you have. Uh, time to move on. Uh, but, you know, then there's a few others that still call me young man. Not too many. But in my lifetime, I have never seen things so ugly in society as what they are today. And it, now, actually, if you do some historical research, you're going to find out that you don't have to go back in time too far to see the same amount of conflict and division in society. I think you'd go back 200 years, and on this continent and our nation, you could see worse division than what we're seeing today. And I mean, it kind of cycles. We are diverse people being pulled in all directions. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. 
Who knows? Maybe I might. But what we value, what makes us different than the society challenges around us is that we value God's glory. And it transcends our whatever age, whatever culture, whatever language, male, female, economics, and past beliefs. When we unite in Christ, we show the world a message that they are not going to find anywhere else. Now here's the caution before we go on with this study in the next several weeks. It's really easy to believe that my way is God's way. That's what, because surely I'm right. You know, I always, I'm amazed when somebody tells me, Mark, you think you're right all the time. I thought, well, if I thought I was wrong, I'd keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but we have to understand, and we have to take this precaution that just because I'm so convinced doesn't necessarily mean it's God's way. God may have nothing in common with either Republicans or Democrats or race colors. God, if, I don't know if you knew this, he has no denominational affiliation. And so here's what Paul says in Romans, quoting David from the book of Psalms. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Do not think that the, that the prejudices of our minds in whatever area of life or culture are what God agrees with. We'll have to let God be the one to give glory. Our culture is, culture is attacking our faith and anybody that has a faith similar to ours. And like I said, I don't think I've seen it this strong in, in looking through history books and maybe 200 years ago it was that bad. You know, forget your 5th, 6th, and 7th, your, no, what would it be? 4th, 5th, and 6th history class. You know, the, they, they always had the good story. They don't tell you all of everything. But a few hundred years ago, it what, probably was a little bit worse. It's tempting to fight fire with fire today. And a lot of people, religious people, good-meaning people, are doing so. We unite in God's truth and glory, and that is our greatest weapon for good. Not so I can win, but that God can win. When you read about the full armor of God, you get in chapter 6, you, know, you think about, again, a lot of you have already read Ephesians, so you know what's in there. But we're talking about how we conduct ourselves in this society, this very corrupt and pagan society. You know, I'll, I'm, I'll be the first one. I probably have been the first one to tell everybody. You know, this is not a, you know, what do they say? This is not a country of, of, of God. I'm not sure how long you'd have to go back to say it ever was, if that's possible. So all of a sudden you get to Ephesians chapter 6, and he says, let's put on the full armor of God. Well, there's nothing in chapter 6 about your Second Amendment rights. There's nothing in chapter 6 about waving flags or marching on City Hall or shouting at the others marching in the other direction. Instead, what is the full armor of God that we'll see? Truth. Righteousness. Not self-righteousness. Big difference. The gospel of peace, faith, salvation, God's word, and prayer. He says that's the armor that you need to be taking up. And that will be our part of our manifold wisdom of God that we present before the world that they've not seen. And they've not seen it in very many churches. 
And I don't care what sign is in the front lawn. It's not something seen in very many churches. Uh, this is reading of Ephesians is really not just for discussion in Sunday school. It's all about life lived as we become God's manifold wisdom. The verse get unified in the message of the cross. A lot of you aren't too good about uh, talking religion. You know, they always say there's two things you're not supposed to discuss, religion or politics. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the first one, it's our obligation. It's our obligation to share God's word. And quit making excuses that you just don't know the word that much. Binge, watch your Bible. Learn it. Study it. As Titus is told by Paul, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. So you learn the word, but at the same time, one of your greatest weapons is actually going to be your heart and the expression of your faith as you live. You know, put some effort into that faith of yours and, you know, don't, don't just come on Sunday for an hour of, of baby bird feed, you know, where the bird just opens its mouth and you drop the word right in there. Fight the good fight and study in this God's word. And I'll just ask you right now, how many of you sat down before breakfast this morning and opened God's word? You said, oh, no, Mark, I don't do it at the morning because I do it in the evening. Okay, how many of you are going to do it before you go to bed tonight? Or how many of you just think, Nah, I'm trying. That's all that God needs to expect out of me. But we are the manifold wisdom of God. And all things show yourself to be an example. Or as James says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show this by his good behavior and deeds and gentleness and wisdom. People don't read Bibles Unfortunately, sometimes even in the church they don't read Bibles, but I can promise you the people outside of the church are not reading their Bible. But they do see you. And I promise you this also, that there are massive amounts of people out there, no matter how odd they may look to you, that long for hope and they long for love. And for that, no PhD is required for you. You just live, and we together live, as the manifold wisdom of God. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of the church. Anybody says that the church doesn't matter, well, Ephesians is going to highly disagree with you. Ephesians is going to let you know that this is God's way to reach the world. Not the four walls, not the new building over there, not pews or chairs, but unified people, as diverse as we can be, but unified to the glory of God. This morning we will offer the invitation, and it's radical. The radical change that God expects, that's glory to God is always radical. And with that, he says, do you believe in me? And believing in me, will you make that change? And as a part of that change, Will you confess Christ and be baptized in waters for the remission of your sins? Whatever you need, though, we'd ask you to come down as we stand and sing. Anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. Anywhere.